This is part two of our Criterion Collection Top 10. So uh, we'll move on to number six now, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, So for my number six pick, I have Paths of Glory by Stanley Kubrick from 1957. And this is fine number uh, 538. Um, So... Uh, the premise is basically it takes place in World War One in um, in in France, and the main lead played by Kirk Douglas, who I think his character name is like Colonel Dax or something. Uh, yeah, Colonel Dax. Um, so it's about three French soldiers in the war who disobey orders from the chain of command above, and they're sentenced to uh, they're sentenced to trial if they're found guilty, and they'll be executed. So basically. They're being on trouble. They're in trouble for for cowardice. Because I think back then, if you didn't obey orders as a soldier, you would you would be be killed mm-hmm. by by your commanding officer or whatever. Um, and I think what happens is like there's like this huge raid to take over something cut they call the anthill, and the soldiers are just like, look, we can't do it. This is a stupid idea. The casualties are going to be off the charts. This is definitely going to hurt us. It's not going to it's not going to advance anything. But um, whoever's in charge is like, no, do it. I don't care. And they're just like, no, we're not doing it. So they don't. Um, So this movie, uh, I think, is a great, well, I'm saying it loosely, a great depiction of dehumanization, especially in war times. Mm. Um, Basically, uh, it's about, you know, these soldiers are just like normal men. They have like normal feelings like we do, but, and it's like the whole reason they, they decide not to go forth with the plan is because a lot of them will be killed. And then at that point, it's like, do you, as a soldier, like, obviously I'm not a soldier and neither are you. So we can't really put ourselves in their minds, but it's kind of like, do you be a good soldier and obey your commands or do you say that, no, this is morally wrong. I can't do this. Um, And Stanley Kubrick would definitely take that idea of dehumanization and run with it for many other movies that he's made. Um, One, like another war film, one of my favorite ones also by Sam Kubrick is Full Metal Jacket, um, which is also an amazing film, which by the way, I do think should get a Criterion release. I don't know why it hasn't. Yeah, um, no, no, I I agree. That should also be that should get a Gracie at some point. Yeah, but um, yeah, just just the Colonel Dax, uh, played by Kirk Douglas, is he's just I'm so amazing in this film. You can definitely feel that he's been put into a pickle where he doesn't exactly know even what to do. Um, in that courtroom scene, he tries to 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 prove these guys um, innocent and stuff like that, but. At the same time, you remember that he also is a colonel in the war. So, again, it falls on him. Does, is, does he does he do his job and and get these guys in trouble and get them executed, or does he fight against you know the whole meaning of like we can't we can't beat the enemy by killing our own guys and stuff like that, right? But um, um, I can rewatch this film a hundred times. I I feel uh. It is a pretty dark, depressing movie. Um, then again, like it is a Stanley Kubrick film, so you can't really, you can't really expect anything else. Yeah, you're not <laughs> really going in for like a fun time when you're watching. Yeah. <laughs> when you're watching a Stanley Kubrick film, uh, but uh, but yeah, this one, this one is probably one of my favorite war films out there. Uh, this one 
it, it's a black it's in black and white it's super suspenseful the shots yeah, are amazing glory amazing amazing movie uh not much to say about this one i didn't really write too many too many things down um one thing i do want to bring up though is i watched an analysis video um and somebody brought up the fact that i actually didn't pick this up the first time i'd seen it but they brought up the fact that during the entire film you don't actually see the german soldiers because and there's reason for it yeah the reason is they really want you to focus on what's going on behind the scenes in this French chain of command, you know? Um, and it's not necessarily maybe just the French that did this to their soldiers. Probably many, many other armies have done this as well. Maybe it's just, just a common theme that happened in like world war one when everything was just chaos, you know? Um, I love the way that, that, well, I can't really say I love the way it ends. I was going to say that, but Another iconic scene at the, as, as at the very end when there's that lady that sings that song and they're in the bar and um, there's one of the lines that one of the guards outside of the bar says where he's just like, you know, we got to go. There's our next mission. But then the other guy says, no, like, let the soldiers stay in there and enjoy the song for a little bit because we need some we need to remind our, ourselves that we are still human and we have emotions. And, you know, it's just it's just a great film to watch for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Paths of Glory. It's been a while since I've seen it. I still haven't. I need to get my own copy of it because that movie is so good. I want to get a Blu-ray. I want to get a Blu-ray criterion of it. Um, all right. Well, my number six is Tuki Buki. And uh, this one is six num- spine number 685. It uh, is from 1973 um, by Jibril Diop Membete. Tuki Buki is a really interesting film. It's one of the first films that I would ever call what's called a hybrid doc, which is a film that's kind of in between a documentary and a fiction film or like a narrative film. And what's great about it is that um, it kind of, it has a lot of elements that you might find in French new wave films. Like some people, a lot of people compare it to breathless or kind of guitar films where it's about a man and a woman and they're kind of, they feel lost and disconnected in this world. That's very bizarre and, and uh, very different to them. Except this one, it's in gorgeous color film. And um, I think this blows any Godard film out of the water, in my opinion. Uh, Tuki Buki is like a very abstract film, yet it still has a clear narrative. Where basically these, this young couple kind of wants to go to France. They want to get away from uh, their community, their region in Senegal that's uh, not exactly very welcoming. They, bo- they both kind of want to escape. And in the process of escaping, crazy things happen. And I won't get too much into it. But what's interesting about this film is, as I said earlier, it's hybrid doc. So intercut with these fiction shots that are, you know, are gorgeous and whatnot are actual things going on. There's a shot of Senegalese wrestling. That's really cool. There's shots uh, probably. And this is the reason that I couldn't show this film or not that I couldn't show it, but it's it's difficult to show this film just anywhere. Um, not only is it like there's like nudity and it's like a rated R, like, but whatever, that's not, is that there's like a lot of uncut footage from a butcher shop or sorry, not a butcher shop. What am I saying? Like a A slaughterhouse, a slaughterhouse. Yes. Thank you. A slaughterhouse that, and I showed this to you, I showed this to you, Gabe, um, those shots. Yeah. I remember they do. They're like, like Mbete is fine with showing you like, a still living cow that is dying, like that has been cut up in front of you. And it's just, it's really like the first time, I don't know, like maybe 
if you're like us and you've seen a lot of gore and stuff, it's probably not all that disturbing. But still, the reality of it, seeing it like and knowing that it's real is a little different. Like, I don't know. There is something to it. So I, uh, for a while, I was going to show this when I was at York uh, with Zach. We were running the foreign film nights at, with the Film Students Association. And one of the things I was like, oh, we should show because we're not showing any African movies. We should show a film from Senegal or something like Tuki Buki. <laughs> and then I remembered, actually, there's a... There's quite a bit of in that movie that's hard to show, but even with like a preface, even warning them, like like a content warning or a trigger warning or whatever, being like, hey, by the way, it's still just like, it's excessive. Or not excessive, but it's there. It's very they present. Really, that, that scene, I remember you showing me, it, they, it goes places. Yeah. yeah. They, they spend time on and that. That's, on the- and that's the beginning of the film. That's in the first act. <laughs> like, <laughs> um. But I guess the reason that I like this film so much isn't just because like, oh, I really like seeing, you know, live cows getting murdered or whatever is because of the 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 window into not only the world that we get, but also like the kind of the the really skillful intermixing of different film styles. So we see this later in a movie called A Thousand Sons, which is even more meta and like self-referential because it's about the actor who plays the guy in Tukibuki. Like it's about him playing himself, kind of reacting to how the film's being perceived uh, much, much, much later. And they recreate some things, like they go into a slaughterhouse again. We see some Senegalese wrestling again. We see a few cultural things again. But what's just great about this is that I think that it goes into such interesting directions all the time the dialogue is super you know kind of mysterious still kind of philosophical um but still very like practical there's some interesting situations that happen uh the music's really interesting it's uh yeah it's good stuff it's good stuff do you, do you own this one so yes oh I, that's interesting so i was just about to thank you for asking me that so i oh. do own i do own tukibuki but i own it in the martin scorsese world cinema oh. collection one but there is going to be Criterion is releasing its own edition. So if you just want yeah. the film, um, I did not know that. But granted, I was already going to buy the Scorsese World Cinema Collections anyway because I am just the ju- just the biggest simp for Marty. But but um, I definitely recommend trying to maybe find the the, the I'm not going to get probably I'm not going to buy it again basically because I, I I have it here, but. Uh, it looks like the the, ex- the the new Criterion edition that they're making for it. I don't know if the spine number might be different now. It might not be 685 anymore, but it's pretty nice. I really like the the logo and type that they chose for the cover of the new one. It's it it's looking pretty nice. And those motorcycle shots that you'll see everywhere that it's very iconic. Um, th- those, I think. Sorry, what? I think it's on the front cover that motorcycle yes yeah yeah that that uh that motorcycle shot where they're together is pretty is pretty the music in that scene is great nice yeah so uh we'll move on to number five now number five let's get it all right so number five on my list is come and see by uh, ellen kilimov from 1985 and this is spine number 1035 um this is a belarusian and german film uh again another war film so um it, it's 
this is a this is basically it, it, it's not really a, a story per se. Like it's kind of just like this has definitely happened to somebody at some point during the war, where basically it's about a kid who gets recruited to fight against like the Nazis by this like local Russian rebel group, and he gets he's just like some kid, and he gets lumped into all this shit, and he sees the true horrors of war. Um, and this movie is extremely horrific. This is, I think this is probably my favorite war film only because it's so horrific. Uh, it's, it's absolutely relentless. Like from the start till, till, till end, it's just this kid. Once, once you feel like, like the first time I saw this, I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, this kid, this kid uh, meets the, uh, the 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 rebel group, and he's now. Don't worry, he's protected now. He's 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 going to be okay. I am going to spoil this movie straight up. Every, like everybody dies except for the everybody around him dies. His family dies. That one girl that he meets um, in the uh, the beginning of uh, when they're in the forest, mm-hmm. she disappears for some reason. Um, at the end of it, he's just, he's lost. Like, like there is that scene where after he gets recruited, him and that girl go back to his home to try and find his family. And when they get in, nobody's there anymore. The food on the table has been spoiled. Uh, he turns around and, and they, they decide to leave. But as they're leaving this, his house, he turns around and he sees just a pile of dead bodies from all those Everyone in, everyone in that little village, his parents are probably amongst those, amongst the, uh, in the pile. His friends are probably out there. Um, there's a great use of uh, composition. Like they, when they show you like an extreme close-up, it hits you like a ton of bricks. It's just like mm-hmm. you see every wrinkle in the guy's face, every tear, every like piece of mud that's on, that's on his face, just like, they really throw you into the grinder in this film. Um, it's got great use of sound. I don't know if it's because uh, Criterion remastered it, um, but it sounds incredible. The acting is amazing. Like apparently the kid, and I think I, I sent you this, um, this a while ago, the kid that plays uh, the main guy in the movie actually lost hair and his hair turned gray during the filming of this. And the kid was like only 15 years old. Yeah. And this is because he was so sensitive to like the topics of war, what this movie was trying to get across that he actually like he aged like 15 years into the future. Um, I actually, you know what? I actually have the movie here. I'm just going to real quick show if you are, if you are going to use video, but this is basically the cover. There he Um, is. Yeah. And I know this is like an illustration of, of what he looks like in the film. This is literally what he looks like by the end of the movie. Like, he's got wrinkles on, like, he's got eye bags. He's got wrinkles on, like, the top of his head. Um, so anyway, yeah, this, this movie is basically just about, again, the horrors of war. Uh, it, it really makes you, it's kind of just like, I, I'm so glad we, we, weren't, we don't live in places like that. And just like, shit, shit hasn't been like that in a long time. Um, yeah, this is a movie that has to be watched. Uh, one of my favorite sequences is at the end when after that horrific scene with the, uh, the barn burning, uh, he walks up to a picture of Hitler on the ground and he pulls out his rifle 
and every single time he shoots, like he basically just shoots the photo in the in the water. And with every shot, it, they cut to like real life propaganda footage of Hitler in the war, but it's played in reverse. So much so to the point where uh, they show clips of Hitler, like when he was like a baby, like pictures of him when he was young. Mm-hmm. And you can honestly, I think, take out that sequence alone and people would understand the message behind the movie. Mm. You know, um, this is a really long one. And I actually watched it at work one day when, <laughs> when I was really bored. And I, I just remember messaging you and just being like, holy shit, dude, like th- th- these, uh, the Russians don't fuck around with their movies. <laughs> like, you know, um, I, I've watched this one a couple times since. I don't know what it is. I think it's just morbid curiosity. I guess. Uh, yeah, th- this one, this one's a horrific film. I, I wonder uh, what, what do you, what do you think about it? I know you see it. Yeah. Oh man. Come and see. Uh, I mean, you've basically said most of like most of what I would say, but I guess I'll just say that like, yeah, it's, it's tremendously horrifying, like tremendously effectual. And like, like, as you said, the, the close-ups of this movie are unlike any other close-up in any other movie. Like, I don't know what it is, but they feel so interior. Like, they feel like the eyes are so much more pronounced. They feel like you can see into a whole human consciousness that is in complete and utter horror and terror. At the, at the beginning of the film, that kid is romanticizing war in a certain way. He's playing with that other you know, on the beach, and they're looking for the gun, and they're like, ha ha, like, they're pretending that they're going to kill each other, and that they're like these evil troops of war, these dogs of war, and it's fun for them. But then the real war hits them. And uh, yeah, yeah. Brutal film. Just yeah. One thing. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's good. You brought that up because there's um, in that beginning sequence when they're, they're digging up the, uh, the guns and the dirt and stuff. uh, There's that, there's that old man with the horse that sees them. And he's like, Hey, like stop digging because they'll, the planes that are flying above will see you. And that's exactly what sends them into the events of the movie so much sort of the point where at some point when they go back to the village, when they're already, when the kids are already with the rebel group, they see the guy who, so who talked to them in the beginning, he's lying down, he's charred from head to toe. And basically what happened was that the Germans found him and they lit him on fire, but he's, he survived through it. The kids walk, there's a shot where the kid, the kid uh, walks through um, this crowd of people and they're all like, they all walk, uh, you know, they clear your path for him and they're all just like, they're just like, Oh, look, they, they killed your family, whatever, whatever. And like he walks up and there's a guy that's lying down on the, on the grass and he turns and he looks at him and he's just like, what did I tell you? I told you not to dig. Um, look what they did to me. They let me on fire and stuff. And he's explaining like, God damn it. Like I told you not to dig. And then it just cuts back to the kid and he's horrified. Like I'd never seen that face on any child in any movie in my life. Yeah. And it's just like, wow that that image stuck with me for sure you know when he like it's it's really fucking horrific for Mm -hmm. sure you know um watch this one definitely watch this one if you're Uh, the name says it all come and see like come and look telling you to watch watch this movie just watch it (laughs) man yeah yeah okay well then it looks like my are we already we're on number five right that's or number five. That was my number five. Yes. Right. Thank you. My number five is Ugetsu by Kenji 
Kenji Mizoguchi. Um, this one is one that was recommended to me because it was on Martin Scorsese's Criterion Top 10. So I didn't really know much about it, but then randomly that same day, it was on Turner Classic Movies, that, that channel. So I was like, why not? I'll give it a watch. Because I thought it was going to be another samurai movie. It's like, oh, it's another old Japanese film. It's, uh, by the way, I should clarify, it's a uh, number, it's spine number 306. It was released in 1953, black and white, uh, set during feudal Japan, much like many of the Japanese Golden Age films. Um, but this movie is unlike <laughs> uh, what uh, some people like when, like, there's usually when you think about Japanese Golden Age, you think about Kurosawa. And then maybe if you're into art cinema a lot, you might think of Ozu, um, which are kind of the two biggest names. But Mizoguchi is like one of the other goats of that uh, of that generation of filmmaking, because this film Ugetsu is really interesting because it's not just one narrative. There's like a lot of different stories. There's ghosts involved, but like, is it really ghosts? it kind of covers a lot of different aspects of society. It's kind of, it's a very philosophical movie where like it talks about, you know, sex work and prostitution. It talks mm-hmm. about um, our connection to the afterlife. It talks about ghosts a lot. It is kind of a ghost movie, but it also talks about samurais and like what it means to be respected in society. One of the, one of the main characters in like, cause it's kind of like, there's like, I think there's three different stories that kind of happen in the film or two. And uh, one of the things that happens is one of the guy really wants to be a samurai to the point where he basically throws away his entire life. And then eventually he finds his wife in um, a brothel and it's like horrifying for him. And, but there, she explains it like, this is my only choice. You like left me and my family or you left our family. There's, there's just so much to this movie. I don't really want to go too, too in depth, but um I like this uh, this line on the back of the of the Blu-ray that I have, um, moving between the terrestrial and the otherworldly. Ugetsu reveals truths about the ravages of war, the plight of women, and the pride of men. And I think that that's pretty much like it sums up really, really well um, that those themes this film does like because it talks about not just samurai pride but it talks about production pride wanting to be a good business person a good entrepreneur this guy really he has a pottery kind of business and he really wants to to go far with it and he sacrifices everything to do it and yeah it's just it's a very wise insightful film um that's where i think mizoguchi really nails it oftentimes he has very like wise films that have Sure, they're they're slow at times and they're kind of obtuse with their meanings. They're not like as clear cut or as like engaging as Kurosawa's movies are easily. But I really think that Ugetsu is a film that is tremendously deep. I know I hate that. It's oh, it's so deep, but like it really is. Um, and uh, yeah, I think. I mean, again, you know, it's kind of interesting because, again, kind of like Come and See, it's nothing like Come and See, really, but it is a wartime tragedy. Um, it's it's like it's got like a lot of fatalistic narratives about like you know feeling like you don't have any other options that the world is crumbling around you that like tragedy is inevitable. Um, yeah, it's it's quite dark. And again, it's not as entertaining 
as a Kurosawa movie, but I think it has the heart that you don't really get from other um, Japanese films from that era, from the time. It's been a while since I've seen it, in fairness, but I remember liking it so much. Like, I've seen it, like, four or five times now, but I remember liking it so much that, like, ah, it's it's got to be on the list, and it's 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 worth the watch, I think. One day we'll get around to it. I'll show it to you. I'll force you to watch it at some point. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh I think I've asked you about that movie too when I was over looking through um the collection. Uh hmm. I, I I I will around I, I will eventually get around to watching even I don't get a lot of films on your list. I will definitely get get around to watching um those ones because there are there are ones that I have seen, ones that I haven't. Um but anyway, that's why we're doing this this top ten, you know? So That's right. Number four, I actually have twelve angry men on my number four, which we spoke about before. Um Everything that's ha- that that has to be said about that one uh, has basically been said. So I think what was that like your number your number six or something? Or yeah, I think so. Or number uh, yeah, number six, I believe. You're number right. Six, yeah. So I have this at uh, at number four. Um, yeah, I basically everything's been said about that one. I guess that's my number four. Yeah, gripping well, drama. Put that put that shit on anytime. Make a stage play of it. Do whatever. Like that script is gold. Like you can. One thing I want to mention though, uh, I think that they they remade that movie in 1997, and it was a direct to TV movie with George C. Scott playing, uh, I think Henry Fonda's character, or maybe oh. the uh, the other dude. Um, that one's obviously in color. I haven't seen that one, but uh, it's got some pretty positive reviews. I guess huh. you know, I maybe maybe I will eventually get around to watching that one, and I'll compare the two. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's the only other thing I think I did not mention. Uh, and what I, what I do want to mention about this one, I can't because it would spoil the movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what? You, uh, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, you know, we're already going a little long anyway. We, we, we can, unless you want to spoil the movie, go ahead. I mean, fuck, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> no, I, I, I won't spoil it. it okay. It's, uh, okay. I won't, I won't spoil it. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're number four then. Uh, my number four is Chunking Express by Wong Kar Wai. Um, this is spine number 453, and it was released in 1994, the greatest year of all time. No, okay. Um, I just love how like weirdly romanticized the 90s are, but I'll say this. Normally, I'm not a 90s romanticizing fan, but this movie, every time I watch it, I, I get like very 90s nostalgic because it has... Okay, so first, I guess I'll just say this. Wong Kar Wai, as far as directors go, might be my aesthetically favorite director Um, because he always works with amazing cinematographers. His sense of framing and, like, the world is so gorgeous. The story is split into two halves, which is kind of what makes it interesting. Uh, Quentin Tarantino talks about this a lot, being an inspiration for his film Pulp Fiction which has kind of a lot of ongoing narratives all at the same time with different characters. Though Chunking Express isn't quite like Pulp Fiction and that's in that same, in that exact same sense, because while it is connected by this, uh, this food place called Chunking Express, the events of each different story are completely different. Um, You could say there's three halves, there's three different plot lines, but I would still say there's kind of only two. So the first part of Chunking Express is about, it's kind of like a noir story. It's about this detective He's on the trail of these drug smugglers um, and 
he is just lost. He personally, not like in his investigation, but like his personal life has shattered. His girlfriend is rejecting him. He is like so desperate to rebound. He's calling every single girl he knew in elementary school. Like things are not going well. Um, and during this time, he goes to a bar and there he doesn't know it, but he meets and interacts with one of the heads of the drug operation he's trying to crack down on. He's like, the, I think the quote is like, I'm going to fall in love with the first woman who falls in love, who, who I see in this bar. And it's that woman. It's just, it, so the first half is very, very gripping and it's very interesting. And then the second half is a romantic comedy. And you're th- like, okay, so he made a film that's part noir, part romantic comedy. What the, What? How how could this possibly work? What the tones will clash? I just don't think I don't know where it's going. But just believe me when I say that there's a sense of wanderlust, a sense of mystery, a sense of like again, kind of an object of desire is present in the film, but we don't know what it is. And I think it is this sense of longing for love, and it, it connects both this dark noir story because the woman that he's investigating also is in love with a dude. In her, in her drug smuggling thing, but then that dude's a piece of crap who like cheats on her, and that ends in a certain interesting way that I love. But um, I think if I could condense Chunking Express down to like why I love it so much is one, it plays a lot with narrative structure, and I think it does it in a really effective, interesting way. But the other thing is that it has so much emotion and charm and value, and it overplays its music, but in a way that works. I, I will. I think it's California Dreaming that they play a lot in the second half to like the point of nauseam. Like when I first watched it at York uh, for a class, everyone after that lecture was like, California. like we were all, we were all just go for like weeks. It was like, and the sky is great. And the sky is great. California. Like we were going for a while because it, it, it imprints that it imprints the song, but it also adds its own kind of, or like meaning to the song like it adds it adds a very special narrative context despite there being a clear narrative to follow it's still there's still something weird about it there's like this sense of yearning that's that it has atmosphere i really like chunking express it's it's good shit it's <laughs> yeah chunking express is a great movie i uh i i watched that one as well um it's not on my list but i think i i'll probably bring it up in my honorable mentions um, Chunking Express is a great one, dude. That, yeah, I agree. Like the uh, California Dreaming was drilled into my head after watching the movie, and I could not stop listening to that song. Um, my mom actually watched Chunking Express when she was younger. She really liked it, but I, when I asked her about Wong Kar Wai, she was like, "I think his movies are good, but they just don't make any sense." And I'm like, <laughs> "Well, I agree with that, you know, because in in Chunking Express, uh, the ending is is kind of." out there it's kind of like you don't really know how it ends in a sense like is is it is there a message to it or is 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 one car why just just being an artsy expressionist you know it, it's it's really up there but um i think uh uh yeah tarantino talks a lot about that film uh in, in a lot of his interviews um yeah that's a great one great pick so uh, for, for my number three, I have uh, A Matter of Life and Death by Powell and Pressburger yes. from 41. And this is spine number 939. Uh, so this movie is about an RAF pilot who, crash, uh, who crashes on a beach and somehow survives. 
And Death himself comes down and tells him that he made a mistake and that he should have died. But the pilot falls in love with a girl, and now he has a reason to live, so he has to convince Death that he deserves to live on. Um, This movie was also at number one for me for a long time. This is the only romance film that's on my list. I think it's the best romance film ever made. Uh, Unfortunately, nobody talks about this film for some reason, and I don't know why. Um, Right off the bat, I can talk about the fact that it's in color and it's in black and white. Mm -hmm. And this is a film that came out in 1941. This is when it it was black and white or nothing, but somehow visually they were able to shoot it in technicolor and in black and white. And what I mean by that is um, they, they cut back between when he's alive on earth. uh, All those, all those sequences are in color, but when they show heaven or the afterlife, it's in black and white and how they're able to contrast uh, the two, the black and white shots and the color shots is just, amazing especially for its time um it gets an a plus for set design for sure there's oh, a yeah. court in well it's not really a courtroom scene this is i don't even know if it's i don't even know if we call it a courtroom because it's not really a courtroom um but basically there is a scene where this whole trial whether or not he deserves to live takes place in heaven or the afterlife and it's uh, th- like con- considering what we have now for movies, the, the effects aren't very convincing, but aesthetically it looks amazing. Costume is phenomenal. Uh, just they have, everything's basically a backdrop, um, but it, it definitely draws you in, especially for the times. So um, there's, there's my little ramble about the special effects. Dialogue is incredibly written and spoken. And what I mean by that is, Old timey films, especially around that time, they have the, uh, the little quasi British uh, transatlantic accent. Where, um, you know, I think I think uh, they were actually taught to speak like that mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, and just the, the way they the way they communicate is kind of like the way I can only really describe it is it's almost like the actors are waiting for the other person to finish their line so they can say theirs, and it goes back and forth. So it's kind of like it's kind of like, oh, how are you today? Good. I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? Blah, blah, blah. You know, they're just kind of going back and forth. Whereas if we were talking in real life, I would say something and then you would maybe pause for a little and process what I said and then you would answer me. Um, this feels like they talked extremely fast. And I think the reason for that is because film was expensive back in the day. Mm-hmm. That's really good a reason for it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a, uh, it, it I guess by today's standards, it, you watching it as a romance film, you could put, you could possibly say that it's kind of dumb because it's like, oh, uh, the pilot crash lands and he falls in love with the girl that he spoke to, that control tower girl, and you know they they fall in love and like, how do they really fall in love when you've only met them in the first like five minutes of the film? But um, yeah, this one, I, I will be honest, I, I shed a tear at the end. This one definitely hits you right where it hurts, and it doesn't have a sad ending. This is an incredible uh, uh, depiction of what, of what like of what humans uh, consider what like love is based on what love could could potentially be in the afterlife and 
whether or not we're in charge of our own fate or, or anything like that. You know, not to get too religion or anything, but um, just death in this, in this movie is not like the typical grim reaper. Like everyone knows him to be like, when you think of death, you think of like, like black cloak with like a skull and like right. a scythe. He's not like this at all. He is literally just like some, he looks like Gene Wilder's like Willy Wonka in a way. And he comes out like this French guy and he's just like, he's just like super funny and he, he's really, really engaging. Um, yeah, it, it, incredible film. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I think that uh, the, uh, the special effects team and the camera team on this film went on to work on uh, Richard Donner's uh, Superman films, as well as Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, oh, wow. But, yeah. And, uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but uh, he was on the special effects team. He went on to uh, to work on uh, Black Narcissus mm-hmm. and Red Shoes as well. With, oh, uh, yeah. with um, And yeah, th- this one definitely deserves my praise. That's why it's number three on my list. Um, anyone that likes romance films, definitely check this one out. It's the greatest romance film ever made. I don't give a fuck what anyone says. You're wrong. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, uh, a matter of life and death. Definitely check it out. It's a great number three. I uh, it's so good. So, what I shall say is my number three being John Malkovich. So, mm-hmm. being John Malkovich, number three. It's uh, spine number six hundred and eleven, and it was released in nineteen ninety nine, right at the edge of the millennium. Um, directed by Spike Jones, being John Malkovich is a film that uh, i wrote my honors thesis about it's in a it's uh, to me it's a film about films uh even though it's technically it's just about this it's about this this guy who's a puppeteer uh played by john cusack he's married to cameron diaz and um they have what can only be described as a very bizarre life cameron diaz i don't know what she does but she has like a crap load of animals and he's like this puppeteer who can't get work. And so where he finally gets work is he does, since his fingers are so great, he does filing at this bizarre uh, company, this like corporate office. And one day he's filing stuff and he finds this little door behind the back of a filing cabinet. And it's a portal inside the mind of actor John Malkovich. <laughs> like the, the, and he's not like, oh dan schneider or like some other name for him like it's it is john malkovich playing himself because technically um there is a portal into his brain that people have accessed and that he has access so what he ends up doing is he and a co-worker who who john cusack's character kind of likes uh well not kind of they they it's a very bizarre relationship that they have they create like a slideshow or like a like an entertainment show as if John Malkovich is a roller coaster for people to come in, pay you get to be John Malkovich for a bit. So not only is the film just entertaining on its own, it's got like a, it's just like got great acting. It's script is really funny. The performances, especially from John Malkovich himself are amazing. But the main thing that I really like about this film and like my, like my, my thesis <laughs> adjust classes um, is that it's about the nature of film itself about why humans love to go into this dark room with a big light that shows us images of people doing things. 
So sure, in the film, it's all first person. It's as if you are John Malkovich. But realistically, when we go into films, I mean, sure, there are some first person films, I guess, like Hardcore Henry and stuff. But for the most part, we don't watch the films through the eyes of someone else. But we do identify with characters without even knowing it. We identify with characters and we kind of take them on and we form our own little opinions of who they are and what they mean to us. Much like how the people who enter John Malkovich's brain do for them. They kind of, they feel renewed. They feel rejuvenated after they've seen this amazing thing of John Malkovich. And I think it's a metaphor for how films can affect us. Films can change our minds. They can, they can become these, these projects for us to discover and understand better. They can become huge sources of meaning that we never knew we had. Um, so that's what I think is really special about it. Cause not only, cause it's, it's a funny film. It's called, I think they call it a fantasy comedy. Like that's what the genre of it is. Like, it's very funny. The script is very, very wacky. Um, so you're going to have a good time, but there's this big theoretical element to the film that I think is really, really there. It's very fascinating because what it also says is that, and this is a great thing that Slyloj Zizek, this Slovenian philosopher, goblin man, um he often it's like one of my favorite guys he often um will talk about uh how films are great not just because they're entertaining but because they or they're not just what's the what's the thing he says uh films are great because they don't just show us what we desire they teach us how to desire they show us a process of understanding what we want not just you know oh here's an image of like a pretty girl or a pretty man or something it's here's what the human response should or could be to this situation or this image or whatever it is. And that's why I think being John Malkovich understands. And I really like the Criterion edition because look, I love the, uh, the cover. It's got this like big iris that I believe it, it actually is John Malkovich's iris. And in it, there's the portal that people kind of like crawl into much like a theater that you enter. Like it's all dark. Huh. There's no one around and it's this big projected room. Uh, and we're just kind of whisked away. And then by the end of it, we're done. We're, we're out. We're, we're outside of the movie theater. We're driving home. And we're, we're thinking about the movie. Just like Cameron Diaz is like, there's a scene where like she comes out of Malkovich or the Malkovich experience, which, which is great because once you're done, for some reason, you just fly out onto like the side of a highway overpass. But like <laughs> they, um, she's like, I think like, she's like, I might be. I might be a, like a, a man. Like she, she has this like huge revelatory, like her entire life has changed and it's a little exaggeratory. It's hyperbolic. Obviously it's supposed to be humorous, but I think that's actually talking about how humans kind of have reacted to films, how we, we can take so much meaning from films and from the experiences of others. And it can change our own life just from, just from watching it. So I, I don't know. That's, that's being John Malkovich. It's a wacky one. Yeah, I'll eventually check that one out too. Um, haven't seen it, but uh, I heard really good things. Uh, I love John Malkovich. I think he's I think he's fucking awesome. Uh, my favorite movie that he's in is Con Air. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest film of all time, Con Air. All time Con Air. <laughs> um, yeah, seriously, he's uh, he's amazing. Uh, definitely a movie that I still haven't watched, but is actually on my list of movies to watch for sure. I will get to that one. Yeah, I think it's 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 great. Um, it talks about identity, talks about film, but it also it's a hilarious, wacky movie where uh, you go into the mind of John Malkovich for a bit. You know, mm-hmm. it's fun. Cool. 
And uh, we'll move on to number two now, I guess. Number two. Okay. So number two on my list is The Wages of Fear by Henry George Clouseau from 1953. Uh, This is fine number 36, and it's in French and Italian. So this movie, when I first saw it, just blew my mind. Um, and basically, it's about four guys who, who drive two trucks full of uh, this highly explosive chemical called nitroglycerin to some oil refinery for some money so they can pay for their airfare across the South American village. And on the pathway from this place that they have to take this highly explosive chemical, it's littered with the worst terrain you can possibly think of, like potholes, sudden twists and turns. Um, there's like quicksand, there's like rickety bridges, everything. And so the idea is the, the slightest bits of, um, irritation caused to these chemicals could just set off both trucks and killing all four of them. So that's the idea of this movie. Um, this movie, I'm, in my opinion, rivals anything that Alfred Hitchcock has ever made in terms of a suspense thriller. Like, mm. The movie is about two and a half hours long. The first 50 minutes of it is kind of slow. It really just introduces all the characters, um, which there's four of them. So, and each, each character has a little, has their own, uh, has their own charm. So you've got the one guy who's like, he's kind of like a silent dude. You've got like the, the disgusting, greasy mustache man. And then you've got the frail old guy who's just full of wisdom. And then you have the asshole who's on, who's in it only for the money. You put four of those people in a scenario where they could possibly die and you get this movie. So, yeah, like I said, it rivals anything Alfred Hitchcock's ever made. Um, there is a scene that that uh, it, it stands out to me because there's I, I really don't want to spoil this at all. Um, but, yeah, no, I'm not going to spoil it. I take that back. I want to talk about that scene. but um. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's amazing because there's a scene where, okay, I'll talk about it like this though. There's a scene where as they're loading on the chemicals onto the truck, they're using like this shitty like wooden plank that they have like resting from like the back of the truck to like the ground. There's no like handrails or anything. It's just this like plank of wood. And uh, they establish how dangerous these chemicals are for most of the film. So then when they're loading the chemicals onto the truck, there's a guy, he, he, he's holding like two of the, the tins. And as he's walking up the bridge, he like slips a little and does like a little like shake and stuff. And then when that happens, like, I'm just like, Oh my God, like my, my, uh, my heart stopped for a split second, you know? And so they get all the chemicals on the truck and they're driving. Uh, they, they overcome obstacle after obstacle. Like they start off by driving really slowly. And then at some point, like the, the car and the truck in front breaks down, but there's no way to tell the, the other truck behind them that they broke down. So they're just coming at like high speeds. Um, and you're just like, Oh my God, just go, just go. You guys are going to die if it explodes and stuff like that. Um, there's a scene where there's like the sharpest turn ever in a movie where there's just like this rickety bridge where they have to like, they can't just make the turn. They have to like turn and then slowly back in. And then go, uh, you know, there's like, there's like a scene where there's like a giant rock that's like stuck in the middle of the road and they have to somehow get by it or else they, you know, um, yeah, extremely intense film. Uh, and by the end of it, you're just so exhausted because you just want these guys to just 
get what they have to just get paid, go home. That's enough for them. They've, they've experienced, they've come face to face with death so many times. Let's just end it. But it keeps going on and on. It's absolutely relentless in that sense. Um, it's so beautifully shot. Uh, I think Henry George Clouseau later went on and did uh, uh, Diabolique, which is also a film on the Criterion Collection, uh, more of like mm-hmm. a horror film. Uh, uh, I think a couple of the same actors in this film are in that one. But um, yeah, Wages of Fear was, I think, honestly, like if, if, if I were to pick, this rivals like my number one pick. Like I, I can't really choose mm. a one or two behind uh one and two spot with this one and my number one which we'll get to soon um but yeah th- this one this one is an amazing film uh it shot extremely well uh i also want to mention that william Friedkin actually made a remake of this film in 1977 called uh the sorcerer i believe and it's the oh. exact same premise it's just guys have to drive this highly explosive chemical to an oil refinery and on the way, there's a shit ton of obstacles. Um, it actually stars Roy Scheider, which is huh. interesting. Um, I haven't seen that one, but uh, the idea came from Henry George Clouseau's Wages of Fear. Um, this is definitely a movie that I recommend for sure. Anyone that wants a super intense thriller, uh, this one is the one to check out. Uh, no disrespect to Alfred Hitchcock's work, because... Every- he is the master of suspense, but um, I think that Henry George Clouseau rivals Alfred Hitchcock. If I have to put it like that, I would say. I mean, that's that's pretty fair. I I haven't seen Wages of Fear yet, but um, I've only ever heard good things. This makes me now knowing that it's like your number two, and it's basically like tied with your number one. I really have to check out this movie. Also. Really, William Friedkin did it, or Friedkin, or like The Exorcist, the, the Sorcerer. Yes, that's I never knew about that. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think it's called Sor. Yeah, the Sorcerer or Sorcerer, whatever. Yeah, it's basically we'll have to we'll have to watch that. Yeah, um, this is a black and white film, though, obviously, but um, uh, there, there, it's a pretty long movie. It's like two and a half hours long. Um, but man, is it intense! Like after the first 50 minutes that are kind of slow, once you get past that, from that point till the end, it's nonstop, constantly bashing you over the head with just intensity. It's, it's unreal. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that, uh, my, that's a great pick. My number two. I still, I still need to check it out myself. I believe it's a great number. I think it's on the Criterion channel still, if I'm not mistaken. If not, you can actually find this movie on YouTube. Oh yeah, you told me about that. I remember, yeah, 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 yes. The full thing is mm-hmm. YouTube. I will have to check it out. That's that's pretty dope. I great pick, great pick. I, I will eventually get around. It's got a really, so got a really fucked up ending. That that's the last thing. <laughs> well, now you've definitely got me. Okay. Like you, you had me already, and now it's like it's got a. Fl- oh man, now I'm there. Um, okay. Well, speaking of fucked up, but in a not nearly as suspenseful or entertaining way. My number two is called Taste of Cherry by Abbas Kiarostami. Or Abbas Kiarostami. This one is spine number 45. Uh, it is from 1997. So another 90s pick. I know a little starting to look like, I was like, oh, I don't really romanticize the 90s, but eh, it's starting to, well, anyway. So this film is basically, put simply, a man contemplating his life while he drives a car around. Now, 
Now, again, this kind of sounds like it could be another kind of pretentious art film type thing. And so you could say it is. A lot of it is literally just this shot of this guy driving around. Like it's, 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 it's pretty much almost exclusively that. It, it just driving around um, what I believe are is like the, the, the countryside of Iran. Um, and it's talking about religious extremism, histories of a, like he, the guy is a, a former soldier. And there's a lot of really interesting narrative going on because we don't really know, like we're kind of just led into it. But eventually he finds someone and he's like, all right, cool. So I need you to dig a hole. And the guy's like, okay, why? And he's like, because I'm going to die in that hole. And he's like, um, oh, okay. So that's basically the film. He's trying to find a place to die. Um, and in that sense, again, it's kind of like Ikiru. Uh, I, I'm not very original with my, it's like, oh, does the guy die? Like, is it about death? Like, yeah, okay, Anthony, like you might be into it. But there's there's multiple different passengers that he kind of takes along the way in his car. And it ends with this, like, what looks like real war footage as well. It has this, um, it's kind of like examining everyday life uh, for many people in this kind of Iranian countryside. But at the same time, it's about, like, the most grave choice one could make. Um, it's very emotionally complex. Uh, I think that Kurostami doesn't really make films that aren't a little emotionally complex and a little kind of poetic. Like that's kind of what a lot of people, film scholars talk about Kurostami. They just talk about how poetic his films are. They, they're like, they do feel like, like poetry. It rhymes like it, but like, <laughs> <laughs> not like empire strikes or not, not like, uh, not like episode three poetry, like more, uh, kind of high art, highbrow poetry. We could say, mm. um, yeah, there's I I think it's it's just it's a film about like mortality, individual choices, that kind of thing. Um I'm a big fan. I also like the newly released version that they did. They used to only have this DVD copy which had some nice artwork, but I really like this kind of like mysterious um kind of cuz this this the 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 Blu-ray that I'm holding up right now for for listeners to to know. Um it's uh very much the color palette of the film it's just it's it's very uh it leaves quite a bit to the imagination while at the same time not i know i'm being very vague with this but i also think that um it's hard to describe without it sounding like it's this boring vision quest of a movie and maybe you could make the argument that it is but i really like taste of cherry um i think i think i wanted to put close up which is another great abbas kurostami film um on this list but i limited myself to one and honestly if i got to pick one that has more value and i keep returning to to kind of discover more about it taste of cherry is uh it's pretty freaking amazing so i think uh the only uh is is the coker trilogy kurostami yes yes yeah so the only movie that i've seen from kurostami is where's the friend's home mm-hmm. that's the mm-hmm. one i've seen i really like that one that's a great movie yeah i think uh taste of cherry it's great. I think even though Ikiru used to be my favorite film about death, I think Taste of Cherry is now my favorite film about death. Hmm. That's why I put it above it. Nice. Cool. Yeah. You know what it's time for now? Yeah, we'll get to uh, honorable mentions now, and then we'll wrap up with our number ones. So uh, I guess I'll go first with my honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, these are movies that would have been on my list uh, if it wasn't so difficult to pick. 
Uh, just off the top of my head, Naked Lunch, David Cronenberg, uh, Throne of Blood, and Yojimbo from Kurosawa, uh, Robocop, because Robocop's fucking awesome, uh, Silence of the Lambs, uh, Night of the Living Dead, Hirakiri, Lady Snowblood, and Solo or the 120 Days of Sodom. Um, I know, uh, of course. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Solo or 120 Days of Sodom. I'm actually currently still reading the book. Um, and, uh, just real quick before we move on, I just wanted to say that the book is more horrific than the movie. Like I was, uh, I was taught, I was telling you and, uh, Anand about, uh, a couple days ago. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Definitely a, a, a memorable film to, to it's, it's, it's never going to escape your conscience once you watch it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It won't. It, it stays with you forever, like a, like a, yeah. like a, like a poison. It's <laughs> shit stain. It stays with you. Yeah, like, <laughs> like. Uh... <laughs> anyway, okay. Uh, yeah. So those are my honorable mentions. Um. <laughs> nice. They're great, great honorable mentions as well. So first off, I'll say a matter of life and death. Or well, my honorable mentions. A mm-hmm. uh, matter of life and death. House. Um. Sweet Smell of Success. It's probably like my favorite film about capitalism, which uh, if anyone talks to me for more than 15 minutes, you know that that's like my jam. Uh, Naked Lunch, State of Siege, uh, Seconds, uh, A Raisin in the Sun, which by the way, turns out my, I believe it's my grandmother, my grandmother's great uncle, Donald Petrie, or maybe just uncle or somehow, apparently I am somehow related to this director who created an amazing movie with uh, Sidney Poitier. It's called Race in the Sun. Very good. Uh, Following by Christopher Nolan, which is uh, uh, what you showed me. Great movie. Amazing. It's so good. Um, come and see. Close up. Seven Sam- a lot of the like, Seven Samurai. So good. But And uh, my, my last honorable mention, uh, I didn't just put it on here because of the name, but it's just, it's called Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. Mm-hmm. Um, it is probably the most bizarre hybrid documentary I've ever seen. I could never tell when it was a documentary and when it wasn't, when it was acted. Um, very, very weird movie. Very much worth the watch, though. Yeah, Following, I, ha- I had on my list. That That's another movie I want to put in my honorable mentions. Following was on my top 10 for a long time. I actually had a lot to say about that one, but uh, I don't know. We'll see it for another time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So finally, uh, number one on my list so far is, uh, the night of the hunter by Charles Lofton from 1955. Um, this is spy number 541. And, uh, basically it's about this robber who leaves like $10,000 in cash to his two young kids before he's arrested and sentenced to death. Um, the guy's cellmate finds out and marries the widow in order to get the kids to tell him where the money's hidden. Really simple premise. This movie was is kind of like a it's like a folktale with film noir involved, um, and uh, at some parts, at some times, it's even like a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen this one? Yeah, but like a while ago. But I remember loving it. Okay, yeah. So um, uh, then, then you then you'll for, the, for anyone who's seen this film, you know what I'm talking about when I say. He, I feel like Charles Lofton, this is, by the way, like his, his first and only movie that he's ever made, because unfortunately when this came out, it was critically panned and people thought it was terrible for some reason. 
Um, and since then it's had a cult following and I'm glad that Criterion picked it up and, and put it on there. But, um, uh, it, it kind of looks like he took elements of like the silent German expressionist, uh, um, films like Nosferatu or Cabinet of Dr. Caligari with like the harsh shadows and silhouettes, um, mm-hmm. and the, the whole Gothic structure of how most of the shots look and stuff like that. Cause a lot of this, a lot of this movie is basically just like, extremely well lit and composed uh shots where somebody's in the shadow and somebody's in the light and they both have different meanings um this is actually the movie that kind of inspired me to write like a like a film noir-esque uh detective crime drama myself which i'm still working on uh it's it's so hauntingly beautiful and i i know that it's it's hard to explain because you really have to just watch it yourself um but there's a scene where i I, i'm going to spoil this one little part there's a scene where the 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 cellmate who's who's like the villain in this in this movie kills uh the wife of kills the widow but the way it's lit and the way it's composed is like like the wife's lying on the bed and it's kind of like a wide shot where they light it so that, so that the room looks like a triangle and it almost looks like a church setting because in the movie, the, uh, the cellmate, uh, the, the villain, uh, kind of plays, he kind of pretends to be like a pastor, like a man of God, but really he's just there to take the money from these kids. He kills the wife, but the way it's shot, it's like, it's kind of like he's shown to be like, a force of evil um, towering over this innocent family and this innocent lady who they're just there to live. And they're just a family who lost their husband. And now you have this asshole who isn't, he doesn't actually love the, the love the, the, the wife, obviously he's just there to, to, to just take the money from the kids. And at some point the kids have to flee the house because it gets so bad. Like this guy threatens to kill the kids. The kids have to flee and he just like stalks them throughout like this the entire like like wherever they live i don't really know where they live but he like follows them from place a to place b to c and the kids eventually run into um this lady uh who is like the is like their guardian angel from that point because the mom dies and that's when you really see uh that guardian angel fight against like the evil forces which in this case is the uh uh, the bad guy. And, um, it's, I know that, I know that like, I have so much to say about this and I really don't know where to start, but honestly, I, I can rewatch this movie a thousand times. It has a really, really, uh, sweet ending. Um, mm-hmm. super intense, super, super well shot. Uh, yeah, just, I think like you could pause this movie at any time and just look at the scenery and just, it could be like a still for like a poster or something. Um, yeah, Night of the Hunter. That's my number one so far. I, I, this rivals Wages of Fear, in my opinion. Like I said before, those two are like neck and neck, but I think I may have enjoyed this one just a little better. Um, mm. Yeah, and uh, I hope this, again, you know, this is a film that nobody fucking knows about, but hopefully now people will know about it. Um, you know, it, it was on the Criterion channel for a bit. It's not on there anymore. I wanted to watch it one more time. Uh, you know, before we did this, just so I could refresh and um, get all my points across. But uh, uh, yeah, it's not on there anymore, unfortunately. So yeah, you'll have to buy the criteria. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how they get you. 
But man, yeah, no, I, Night of the Hunter is just, uh, yeah, what a tremendous film. And yeah, I, I think, uh, as you said, you could pause this film at any time and the use of lighting, the use of like framing, like the, 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 the blocking of actors, like where it's just like everything is like a painting, let alone a shot that you only see for a few seconds. It's, and yeah, even the performance, the performances are amazing, as you said, but even from the kids, how the heck did they get child actors to like, in that time to do well i don't know it's mind-blowing but that film i love the the shots where they're in the boat and like yeah. the kind of like misty swamp like yeah. my god that that's a shot that when i saw that sequence goes on for a little bit but i was just so blown away by the way it was shot how it mm-hmm. looks um it's extremely haunting but at the same time very very beautiful um you know like that shot where they're in the boat just like like flowing down like the the stream there's the moon, there's the shot of like the moon in the background. It just lights up. It's just sitting on the horizon. It just lights up like the, uh, the water. Um, there's like, there's like that shot where, um, there's like a spider web in the foreground and in the background, the boat just slowly drifts by as the girl sings that song by herself. Phenomenal cinematography. I love, love, love that movie. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that is a, that's a really good pick for number one. I remember one of my friends from film school, I think it's uh, Joseph. Yeah, really good guy. I think he also, uh, he he loves Night of the Hunter. And um, I remember, I think that's when I first saw it. Like he recommended it. And then I saw it like, it's a while ago now, but like, man, yeah, that great, great pick for number one. I, it's, it's a classic and it just has so much value. You can return to every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my number one, and this is predictable if you know me, like I'm, I'm so basic now. Like everyone who talks to me, like they're like, "Hey, what's your name?" And I'm like, "My favorite movie is so like." But uh, my number one is Persona. This is from 1966 by director Igmar Bergman from the great land of Sweden, um, and uh, this is spy number 701. It took a while to get Persona onto the Criterion Collection, but when it did, it got this awesome digipack that you can still get. It's got uh, the DVD and Blu-ray combo pack in it. Um, love, love it. So how to describe the events of Persona? I'll try and <laughs> make this quick. It starts off with uh, Liv Ullman or Liv Ullman. Um, she plays a Hollywood, or not a Hollywood, what am I saying? A, a stage performer who one night uh, she loses her voice like before she's about to go on stage and she can't like, she can't speak at all. There's nothing that she can say. She loses her entire voice. So then uh, we cut to her kind of the, the, the implied events passing that uh, she goes to uh, a hospital or some kind of infirmary. And from there, she meets a psychologist who prescribes her like, hey, listen, you can go to this cottage for a bit with uh, this, psycho- uh, this other psychologist. You and her can kind of like, she'll do some analysis work on you and we'll, you'll, you'll work it through. It'll be in a nice environment, um, kind of like some deep therapy. That's, that seems like what you need to get past this. And from there, uh, the film, we could say, devolves. It devolves into this mishmash of identity and confusion and uh, chaos, visual chaos. Um, the film is well known for being kind of, it has these three points in it, like one at the beginning, one directly cut in the middle, where like the film breaks randomly, like one of the frames. It's almost scary, almost like a jump scare, like the film breaks like there's a little line that like as if it's a glass frame it breaks and it turns into this slideshow an experiment like what looks like an experimental film um which it, it is 
uh, of like bizarre imagery. And not only are these like, you know, haptic scenes, they're like very kind of flashy. They're very bizarre and kind of with loud music that's kind of to throw you off. It's clips from like really old vaudeville silent films of people running around. It all kind of creates this super, super bizarre movie that by the end of it, you're like not exactly sure what happens. Does this woman actually recover her voice? Because she doesn't really, there's a scene where uh, this, the other psychologist woman, B, who played by B.B. Anderson, manages to get her to, to scream, but we still don't really hear all that much dialogue from her. Um, so, but we later end up finding out that she did kind of come back. We don't really know. It's all very vague and fluid, and really, it's because the film is supposed to be experimental. It's a very artsy movie. It's very much like, you know, the scenes of the the, the sequence of events isn't supposed to even make sense, even when it's the normal narrative, um, which is these women kind of trying to figure out their identity. They're trying to figure out their who they are, um, and it turns out they're kind of the same person, uh, sort of. I won't spoil anything more than that, but. Um, there's there's a lot of bizarre imagery in it and i think that it becomes very well known for its imagery the image of the child this kind of kid with glasses reaching out to a blurred screen and this blurred screen is maybe it's her his mother maybe it's what he thinks is god who knows but it's Liv Allman's face and if you're and if you're a, if you're a cinephile like me you'll notice that it also is kind of bb anderson's face the idea that these two people are kind of the same and the idea of having a fluid identity is very much a part of the film. Persona itself, like the term, kind of means to have a persona. It's like not just myself, it's not just my my individual identity, but it's a performance. But how much of identity is a performance? Where do we draw the line? Is it a subconscious performance? Are we always performing ourselves to ourselves? There's a lot of like crazy questions and bizarre themes that you could kind of reach from this film. And that's kind of why I like it so much. It's why I keep returning to it because it always seems to give me new meaning. It always seems to kind of present me with new challenges to kind of overcome the new ideas about what it means to really be a human being, new ideas. Like, do we really have a fixed identity? Do, do, do our memories really um, define us? Are our, are our relationships to other people and to ourselves uh, indicative of who we are or are, can we isolate ourselves? Can we be our own human in our brain and then be a different person outside in the real world? Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird one. Also what's great about it <laughs> is that uh, it's got a shot of Igmar Bergman's peepee in it right at the beginning. Just this little shot of Igmar's penis happily standing up resolute, like a man, saluting or something i don't know uh <laughs> he's uh he's he's 10 hut as they say in <laughs> in, in that i remember when i first saw that too like when i first watched this movie that's something that like I, after a certain point i was like did i really just see igmar Berman's uh giant erect penis and it, 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 <laughs> it's so brief it's like two frames but it's there yeah yeah and it, and it has like a little sound it goes like boop yeah. Like, there's a little sound effect to it. Like, it's like almost trying to be like silly. Like, I don't, in this like very weird psychological art film uh-huh. randomly, it's just like, oh, here's my dick. Like, it also interesting to connect to Mulholland Drive, one of your favorite films as well. And one of my favorite films as well. Mm-hmm. But like, um, two women 
finding out that they're more connected than they think they are. Their identities overlap. They contrast. Um, that kind of thing. You can't just summarize this film in a sentence. Um, much like Mulholland Drive. And, um, you know, it, it has those kind of core aspects to it. Uh, yeah. Persona, it's, it's a wild one. Persona is a great is a great film. It's not my favorite Bergman film. I personally think that, in my my opinion, The Magician is actually my favorite Bergman film, mm. um, as well as Seven Seal. Those are both really really good movies. Mm. Um, yeah, Persona is. Uh, I don't know it's no surprise to me that that's your that's your number one pick uh, <laughs> at all. But um, yeah, that one I, I thoroughly enjoyed the first time. I may not have understood uh, first time across, but. Uh, it, it, it definitely warrants multiple viewings, I'd say. The first time I saw Persona, I fell asleep. It was, and it's only like 90 minutes. It's not even that long. I think it's like, yeah, 83 minutes. Three minutes. So like, but, it, but as I say, the more it, it like, it refused to leave my head. It was one of the few movies that was just like, nah, for some reason, you're just not going to stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it always invites me to rewatch it. Like, I think I've, since watching it, I think in 2016 was the first year I've watched it at least once a year, every year so far up until this point. And I don't think I'm going to stop. I mean, I watch it multiple times in one year, but like, you know, like at least once a year, I try and rewatch it and like recollect my thoughts on it because it's, it, it's really changed. Uh, and I've read so many interpretations of the film at this point that it, it's like ad nauseum. I've read and watched, like I've watched plenty of YouTube video, Renegade Cut, who we've talked about a bit. Yeah. Um, has a great video on persona talking about fluid identity and uh, disassociative identity disorder. Like he kind of tries to take a more literal take on it versus some people. They think it's about like lesbian vampires and stuff like that. There's so many, there's such a wide variety of interpretations to this film that it makes me think like, well, what's mine going to be. And that's, what's great about it is that I think that it's so subjective and so internalized and it has so many like bizarre kind of nuance to it that anyone could kind of come away with any almost, I mean, uh, it's like it's about giraffes like okay that person's wrong but i mean like if someone says like uh, you know they can't, they have a really unorthodox interpretation of it i'm not quick to say like no you're wrong because like you know like what i'm not right so like how could you be wrong you know it's like so no it's it's definitely a weird one but it's my favorite it's like my favorite movie it's a great one i love it all right. Well, we made it. We did it. Yeah, we, that's uh, we made it till the end. We made it to the end. Our top ten Criterion film. You know what? Like when when I first started buying Criterion editions, I thought to myself, I'm only going to buy like three of them. I bought. <laughs> that, that's kind of what I thought as well. And then um, I started just watching more and more. Uh, like I I have a bunch of the ones that you introduced me to as well. Um, mm-hmm. but as, as, as we went on, just looking into watching, you know, those closet videos where people talk about, uh, whatever films that you should check out, I would end up going checking those films out. And then it's just like, Oh, well it's on the buy list now. Um, you know, I still have a shit ton of fucking movies on my criterion buy list that I still have to get. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, it's an unhealthy obsession and, uh, <laughs> it's entirely your fault that I am broke now. So. Uh, I just wanted to, dude. It's totally fair, man. Do you love buying Blu-rays from this one company 
that like up like basically its whole point is that it like adds a few bonus features get some nice graphic design and then they mark up their blu-rays like 20 extra dollars like what like how, how could you justify this and i can't i'm addicted no i'm kidding but like i <laughs> i would say that like part of the reason that i really like criterions is not just the hoity-toity like you know art cinema like um you know ego boost that i get from watching and appreciating one of them it's not that it really is i think that the people who work there like the curators of the collection really understand cinema and like the best parts of it like they do have i think like one of the great catalogs to look through um i think it's like a great guide for a lot of people who don't know that much about art films to dive in when they see a criteria and you know it opens up a whole new world of foreign films that like i didn't know about i don't know if you didn't know about but like you know there's a lot of discovery that the criterion collection offers yeah there there there's so many hidden gems that um honestly movies that i can truthfully say are some of like the greatest films i've ever seen are on the collection um so yeah it's it's i always i appreciate what they're doing i think it's amazing for uh, especially this day and age where everything everybody is so everybody is so um what's the right word for it like um the all they want to see is like explosions and just nonsense it's yeah good to sit back and appreciate films from the old times and, and uh see um you know how uh, how films were back in the day and i mean as a filmmaker myself it's it's uh, that that's where it comes from you know that's where all the uh that's from the teat you know <laughs> the, all the techniques those films uh like kurosawa for example just on his own just pioneering genres by himself um for mm-hmm. just a study from from decades and decades from from that point you know so uh yeah it's uh th- this is a this is a really great uh great thing to do uh mm-hmm. who knows maybe we'll maybe we'll after a couple of years, we'll we'll do another top ten list and uh, see how much uh, see how much has changed. But uh, as for now, uh, I think those uh, the top ten that I have on my list um, it's going to stay like that for a while. Um, you know, until until it doesn't. Uh, there's a shit mm-hmm. ton more Criterion films that I haven't even seen, and you know, I'm looking forward to just fucking sitting there and watching everything. You know, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a journey. Yeah, yeah, same here. All right, well. That was pretty great. Yeah. What a what what a good time. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, Gabe. Yep. I mean, I'm saying we, but since Zach is is gone, I don't know, do something stupid like practicing to be a lawyer or some crap. I don't know, whatever. Stupid crap. Um <laughs> but we uh I and we and I'll include Zach too. We really appreciate you coming on and and spending the time to 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 talk about the cinema, man. Yeah, anytime, man. I I've always I'm always down for a good uh, slimy about movies, man. Anytime. Yes. Uh, any. Well, likewise. Likewise. Uh, okay. All right. Well, I th- thanks, man. Think we'll end it there. Perfect. Thanks, Gabe. I went to film school. Is recorded in Toronto, Canada, and produced by Zach Gladstone and Anthony Moss.